Hello fellow homebrewers, JP here, and I want to introduce to you the brand new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Series available at More Beer. More Beer sells the highest standard in homebrewing equipment, and the Brewbuilt Conicals are just that. They're made from mere polished 304 stainless steel, and they come with loads of features that you and I have been looking for. They have a full 2-inch bottom dump valve, which will eliminate your clogging issues, while the sturdy base includes four reinforced legs, just like those big pro tanks do. More Beer also carries the Brewbuilt line of options and add-ons like casters, pressure kits, and even external glycol chillers. So you can find out more about the new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Unitanks by going over to morebeer.com for detailed videos on the entire line of Brewbuilt Conicals. You can trust Brewbuilt with your next fermentation, and you can trust More Beer to find the right conical for you. Brewbuilt at morebeer.com. Great beer is about drinkability. Doesn't matter the style. You guys are like walking beer Wikipedia. That's the first time that you've ever accepted me as a person. Or you have a fermentation in your gut. I'm Jeff propelled at all times. (laughs) How many guys do you think that you have the privilege to slap? Somebody who's never tasted a commercial example. And this is how you know everything about this beer? Please, you don't. I think it's bullshit. (laughs) I think it's bullshit, too. Wow. Are you guys going to arm wrestle? No. No. We're going to teabag fight. (laughs) You heard of Junkyard Wars? Can I get another high five, Beavis? (laughs) Now, live from the Brewing Network Studios in Northern California, this is the radio program for home brewers, craft brewers, beer lovers, and beer geeks. It's your only source for live beer radio that brings expert brewers together with, well, expert drinkers. This is the radio program with a head on it. This is The Session. Zeitgeist. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're the Brewing Network, and this is a beer radio program. It's all I do for a living is hang out and talk beer with guys like this. So SF Beer Week, which, uh, if you didn't know, is in full swing right now. We're about in the middle of it. And by the looks of the hangovers on some of your faces, I can tell that you've been enjoying San Francisco Beer Week also. Uh, So what we do is interview craft breweries. Uh, A lot of our listeners are home brewers, so we tend to geek out about beer and and, uh, learn about the techniques that brewers use so that we can do it at home. But sometimes we just come out to events like this to uh, drink beer and, and talk to brewers and enjoy your company. And that's what we're doing tonight for our San Francisco Beer Week event here at Zeitgeist. Uh, for those of you watching and listening at home, welcome to the show and thanks for being with us. I've already told most of the people here that we've got uh, Firestone Walker Brewing Company's uh, Matt Brennelson right here to my left is with us today. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for coming out. I appreciate having you up here in our part of the state. Yeah. Matt's from uh, the brewery's actually in Paso. Do I have that right? El Paso de Robles. California, okay. Central Coast, the forgotten lands. <laughs> right. You're sort of putting it on the map. That You and surfing are uh, putting Paso Robles on the map. Yeah. Well yeah. done with that. Uh, and then uh, to Matt's left, we've got Lars Larson from Trumer Brower Eye, oh. uh, which is in Berkeley. It, very close. Much yeah. closer. Much closer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Lars. Thank you. Now, Trumer was uh, originally a, a brewery from Austria. Do I have that right? That's right. Uh, Salzburg, Austria. Okay. And uh, is it still there? Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. It's uh, just outside of the main city, Salzburg, and it's uh, been around for over 400 years. 1601 it was founded. And so is Berkeley uh, just the second location? Uh, yes. It is, so there's only two on Earth, one one we have and one the Austrians still have. Exactly. Okay. And Trumer Pill, this is a, kind of an age-old recipe from Trumer, is that right? Well, it's as old as, as a Pils recipe can be. Okay. Uh, so Pilsner as a, as a style has not been around for 400 years, but it's certainly one of the oldest uh, of their beers. Okay, so, yeah. got it. Uh, but you guys haven't, I guess what I mean is uh, you don't really alter uh, this Pilsner recipe. It's no, no, it a tastes traditional... Like, exactly. It's the same recipe that they use, so the beer tastes identical if you're drinking it in Austria or if you're drinking it here. Okay, fantastic. Well, so here at SF Beer Week, uh, there's so many different events going on. I went to, we were just talking before the show, um, I went to a beer dinner last night that lasted six fucking hours. <laughs> Sean Paxton must have been it was a It was a Sean Paxton uh, beer dinner. I see some familiar faces out here that were at the dinner too. And I like this about Beer Week that there are these dinners and there are these things, but only a beer geek is going to sit at a beer dinner for six fucking hours. Uh, but I I got great food and fantastic beer from uh, Ninkasi Brewing Company was there and uh, Speakeasy Brewing Company from here in San Francisco. And Hebrew Brewing Company had some beer there. Uh, and I like about SF Beer Week that we all kind of get together and, and do these events. So Firestone and Trumer called up the Brewing Network and said, hey, well, we want to do an event too, and we'd like to do it with you guys uh, so that you could broadcast it to the world. So I just wanted to thank everybody for uh, helping us create our own San Francisco Beer Week event. Now, I find it interesting, these two guests uh, uh, that I have next to me, because they are two very different brewers. If you're familiar with uh, Firestone Walker beers, um, they're kind of all over the, the map. I mean, you do a little bit of everything, Matt. It all originated with uh, English ales, so that's at the core of it all. Okay. And, uh, and hops are, are very near and dear to your heart, which is a Northern California phenomenon, too, I think. Absolutely. Um, and what I find interesting about the, the I, I don't even really call it much of a difference between you two, is that uh, Lars Pilsner was the original hoppy beer. I mean, yeah, back when uh, Hellas and different lagers like that were uh, considered clean and crisp and, and uh, for lack of a better word, pure German beers, Pilsner came along and it was exploding with hops uh, that the Czechs had, had put in there. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, on that's that. true. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and still to this day, it's considered a hoppy lager, but maybe next to like a Union Jack from Firestone Walker, a lot of us wouldn't call it hoppy anymore. Certainly in, in Germany, in, the, in its home region, Pilsners are considered the hoppier beers. Okay. And I think to this day that is probably the case, and, and in, uh, to a large extent because the Germans are not very adventurous in terms of the kinds of beers that they try to, to make. Not Nowhere near like what is happening in the U.S. Okay. So where things have gone with hops and the kinds of beers that are being made in the U.S., uh, I mean, it's exploding, and, and the Germans are still very traditional, and, and they, they kind of 
work with their four, five, six different styles, and that's it. Sure. So. But they're the original experts, both in growing hops and in brewing. So. And, and minutia. And once, and once they uh, once they dial it in, they don't deviate. That's it. Yeah. We've gotten it right, and we're sticking to it. Exactly. It's interesting to note that we're sitting at a German bar that has uh, more tap handles than most uh, beer bars in San Francisco, too, of all sorts of different beer. How many tap handles, how many beers on tap do we have here at Zeitgeist? 48. 48 on tap, but there's 64 uh, handles, uh, but 48 beers on tap at one time. Not very German of Zeitgeist, I think. <laughs> it's kind of the, uh, the American hybrid with it. <laughs> so, but even still today, uh, the hops used in German beers, give us some of the hops that uh, are traditionally used in Pilsners and, and other German beers so we can know them by name, Lars. So the noble hops you'd get in Pilsners would be um, Tetnang's, Spaltz, Spalter Selects, the Zaz is probably the most famous. Um, uh, Holler Towers, oh, yeah. there's, um, Perla, there's, there's a, a number of them. Okay. And Matt is probably a bigger expert on hops than I am. That's his kind of his background. He named all so. the main ones for sure. Okay. And they're called basically noble hops. And, and some of their characteristics that I really like, I still, Pilsner is, Pilsner and Pale Ale are my two favorite styles, I think. Uh, sour beer is quickly becoming my... my I think of Pale wow. Ale being the English equivalent to Pilsner. Of a Pilsner, right? Yeah. Because of the clean... So what I was getting at, though, is that the, the uh, noble hops have this kind of crisp and also spicy flavor to them um, that is really distinctive in a Pilsner and why it became... Why I call it really the, the original hoppy beer. Well, one thing about noble hops is that they are relatively low in bitterness and high in aromatic oils. And oh. so you get a lot more aroma out of the same quantity of hops that you're putting in. And so you get... A, because of that, typical for a Pilsner is not only the bitterness, but the aroma that comes out of it. And it's not the grapefruity, big-in-your-face uh, hops that we get in the, uh, coming out of the Yakima Valley. They're, they're much more subtle in that sense. Okay. So, Are Trumers hops still grown in Germany? Yes. Or th- th- that they're mm-hmm. all German so, hops? Um, our aroma hops are German hops, and our bittering hops are Austrian. So Austria, it's a, okay. a variety coming out of Austria. Uh, spa, uh, the uh, Aurora is what it's called. Aurora. That's your yeah. bittering hop. Yeah. What, what's your aroma hop? It's the, uh, it's the Tetnang family, so Tetnang Zaz and Spalter Select. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to, say, uh, a pale ale, uh, if it's an English pale ale, it's a little different than maybe the pale ales we're having out here, uh, Matt. But we're more having, like, the grapefruit that uh, Lars mentioned, or citrus of any kind, right? Yeah, in my mind, I always think of the European, especially continental European hops, having a lot of humulene and, uh, uh, you know, farnesine and what we call kind of the oxidized sesquiterpenes that bring resinous, woody characteristics, the noble characteristic that you're talking about. Okay. And the American varieties have this, you know, we believe here in the United States, this wonderful citrus, grapefruit, anywhere from stone fruit to, um, you know, grapefruit zest characteristic. Yeah. But it's interesting, you go back to European textbooks, and although de Klerk was a Belgian uh, writer, he said that, quote-unquote, American hops were unsuitable for European-style beers, especially Pilsner. So if you were to make a Cascade Pilsner, any German that knows anything about beer would say that's not Pilsner. This is not right. This is not Pilsner. And they're adamant about it. Yeah. Right. But that humiliating note tends to be the signature note for me. And I think that um, anytime 
there's a fruity characteristic associated with it, then it's considered not, yeah. not in the Pilsner world. So, Lars, what happens in the in the Trumer Brauerei if if you come in and want to use something like uh, you know Cascade in a in a new beer or something like that? Are you shunned? Do they kick you out? We're very traditional. Yeah, we don't do that. We don't vary from our recipe. This we, is what we you know. Make. We've got a good thing, and uh, if we were you know, screwing around with it, then it wouldn't wouldn't be Trumer. So, I mean, the, and what we really are doing is focusing on making just a Trumer Pilz, and that's that is our our single minded focus in a very German traditional sense. Yeah, so that's that's what we want to do well, and so that's what we're sticking to. Well, the thing I like about it too is that uh, a couple times I went to Germany. They're also big on local beer. And, in fact, uh, most communities have a local brewery, and that's what you drink if, if that's where you live. Um, so having Trimmer in Berkeley, you, you become our local Pilsner. Do you guys distribute uh, also outside of California? Seven states total. You but do now. Okay. 60% of our sales are in San Francisco okay. and you know, 75 to 80 in California. So we're really a local beer, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Okay. And, Matt, how about the Firestone beer outside of California? Very Recently, we started expanding into the western states, so now you can find us in six uh, western states. And then we have uh, an agent that lives in uh, Kansas City, former Boulevard Brewing Company employee, who is in charge of export uh, for Firestone, which is basically... Export to to the country of Kansas? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Missouri? Chicago, Philadelphia, New York City. Basically, all the major beer centers outside of our western region we consider the export market. We send a very small amount of beer. And I say it's kind of a seeding project to see what will grow and what will take root. And, and we'll follow that when we can make enough beer to fill those markets. But okay, foot in the door, so to speak. All right. So speaking of regions, one thing that I wanted to talk to you, you two about is uh, we were talking before the show, and you both got the chance to go down and judge beer at what I think was the first uh, beer competition in Chile uh, together. Is that right? That is correct. I'm going to let Lars pronounce the competition. Copa Cerveza. Are you from Chile, Lars? No, but I spent a fair amount of time down in South America. I lived in Argentina for four years. Okay. And, and is that, so that's how the connection was made to have you guys come down and judge at this competition? Yeah. In, in my case, um, certainly to some extent my Spanish knowledge was useful. Um, and then being able to judge beer, I've uh, we were also asked as, as a part of what we're doing, they knew that they had uh, a lot of brewers that were really thirsting for knowledge so to speak, and they wanted to have uh, us be able to give some presentations, not only judge beer, but also give some presentations, and um, so I was able to do my presentation on uh, mashing process in Spanish, and okay. so that came across very well. Perfect. Yeah, that's a good uh, skill to have. <laughs> and I can't, I can't speak Spanish. I can't even order a beer in Spanish. I'm happy to be here, guys. So I don't know why they asked me to come, but I, I talked about American hops, and... Uh, well, that's why they asked you, because yeah. you can talk about American hops. And- so, so Chile is, it's a lot like my experience coming to the central coast of California in that it's a, it's an alive wine region, wonderful wines, and uh, some, some Ge- geographically extremely similar to central coast of California. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. Mediterranean climate. And the brewing scene's just getting going, but it's, it's like being in the United States 20 years ago. Some passionate uh, home brewers uh, turned pro. Um, a little interesting twist. There's a lot of European influence down there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we met some extremely passionate brewers making some good beers, and I think there's a lot of things similar to what was happening in the United States 20 years ago. But uh, So, I mean, here we're obviously pretty spoiled with the amount of breweries that
that we have and the amount of beer that we have access to. Uh, in Chile, what would a, what would a beer bar look like? What would a zeitgeist look like in Chile? Well, zeitgeist wouldn't exist. Okay. Uh, first of all, yeah, let's get that straight. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you might get a place that will that couple of them, the place where we had those gigantic pizzas, the four-foot diameter pizzas, they, um, I've never seen wow. a, a, a Is that UFO for, like that. Is just for two of you? <laughs> they, um, they, they did pretty well. I think they had 20 different beers on tap. So they've actually, but they were the only place in town. And, and Santiago is a city of 5 million inhabitants. Okay. So, I mean, it's, a, it's you know, four, five times the size of San Francisco. And they had one beer bar with multiple taps to that extent. So, I see. Yeah, so much of the, most of the startup uh, craft brewers were doing bottle product. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really odd. I, this didn't happen in the United States craft industry, but most of them feel they must pasteurize if they're going to put it in bottles. So really? uh, these craft brewers had you know all these different devices to pasteurize their Essentially bottles, a which I thought, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it the Hobart dishwasher. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's how they pasteurize. <laughs> interesting. The, the kind of interesting water baths and setting crates in there and timing out you know 145 degrees for x amount of time. But I think that that's a problem because it's zapping a lot of flavor from these beers and they're not. There's no hops grown in Chile, so there isn't really a hop-driven thing going on there. The people in Chile like yeah. sweet, they like malty, exactly. and okay. so the beers that we were experiencing, I mean, some wonderful porters, in fact, it was a porter that won the competition. Um, not a lot going on with American-style IPAs, but some definite interest, mm-hmm. but this pasteurization, I think, is a bit of a blockade to get there. So the beers that we're used to having here from craft brewers in the U.S., is, is pasteurization a faux pas? It's something we don't do? I wouldn't go so far to say that. I wouldn't say it's a faux pas. Um, there are probably some of the bigger breweries who are doing it to a small extent, more likely in the flash pasteurization side of things. Um, but it's, I think, craft brewers in the U.S. driven out of the draft business. That's how we grew up, is doing draft beer. Okay, and that's how, it, and you know, by and large, craft brew, I think, in the U.S. is um, what's really where you see its dominance is the number of tap handles. And uh, we sure. have, a, have a majority of tap handles around the country, probably, despite a very small number of, well, certainly in this region, but despite the sales volume discrepancy to the big brewers, down there they don't have that. They don't have that many tap panels. People don't go and drink draft very much. So okay. yeah, they don't have that problem. access to do it. And uh, draft beer traditionally is not pasteurized. Okay. So we don't traditionally pasteurize because it is draft beer. So the the point of pasteurization and, and why I know that some of the, the larger or all of the large breweries do it um, is, is for shelf consistency and shelf life, right? Because if it goes in a bottle, that's a perishable product that oxygen and light and different things. So through pasteurization, it can it will last longer on the shelf. Is that Mic- about right? Micro stability. It's okay. micro only. Microbiological stability only. Okay. Yeah. But in the keg, that's less of a problem. It's not oxygen perme- permeable. It's not uh, obviously uh, subject to light. Sells faster. You and know, it's, you, okay, you don't right. keep it around longer. And <laughs> in this market, everyone keeps it cold, right? I yeah. don't know about in South America, but uh, right. Well, not even in every market in the uh, in the U.S. Really. But, uh, but ideally, yeah. <laughs> you hope so. <laughs> right. But I was so impressed. But one, uh, the, the the festival and the competition organizers really had looked at American competitions like the World Beer Cup and GABF, and they're using the BJCP judging method. So we were, you know, scoring these beers with 
that method. So they'd done their homework um, to uh, very well organized, and they they uh, done a cooperative with a local food university. So we were in a very uh, we were basically in a sensory lab setting to judge these beers. Wow, um, very high quality setting. They did a great job. Yeah, and they they okay. drew judges that knew beer and wine from all around South America, and then they brought in uh, Lynn Kruger from the Siebel Institute of uh, in Chicago, uh, a couple other brewers from the United States. They had a nice cross section of judges. So I think for a first year competition, the, the interesting thing was because we're using BJCP, and most of the time at GAVF you pick one, two, and three: gold, silver, bronze. So yeah. everybody wins an award <laughs> in each category. We were being hardcore, and we were just you know scoring these things as we saw them, and they did not give away very many awards. So I think there was a lot of there were a lot of brewers who were a little oh, bit no. disappointed that these judges came in and were so hard. I don't know if we're going to be asked back. <laughs> so in other words, on the other hand, the thing is with that particular system, though, they, they went on a strict point system, so they gave out very few golds. Okay. Very few, but there was not a gold in every category, so there were very few golds, but there were a lot of bronzes. So they gave, uh, there were multiple bronzes per category. I so would think that in a, yeah. in a new market and in and a first-time competition that they'd be the opposite, that it'd be a little bit more like Little League where everybody gets a trophy. That they well, might... they kind of asked us not to be that way. Okay. So we took them literally and um, right. they seemed okay with it. No, I think it worked out well, and I think it means something to the brewers and jelly now. If they win an award, it means something. I mean, the guy yeah. who yeah. won the gold medal for oh. his porter wept on stage. Really? Like, he literally yeah. cried. Wow. <laughs> I guess I would, too. I guess, especially if there's only two gold medals given out that day. <laughs> How many breweries do, do you know were entered about? I don't recall um, exactly, but I would say maybe 50 or 60 breweries complete or more. Yeah, we did. Um, we probably tasted... What do we do? Sixty beers on on the first day, each of us, and sixty in the second day. Okay. So, uh, in four different groups. Mm-hmm. So there were plenty of beer. Four, yeah, four five hundred beers. And they opened from, it up um, to at least hundred breweries. They, here's another thing: they opened it up to international breweries. So only a few American breweries entered. I won't yeah. name names, but it was interesting that those brewers also didn't take high uh, scores necessarily. Yeah. So it meant a lot to win, and I. I, I, I I got nothing but high praise for the way the organizers set it up, and I think it has sure. a future. Yeah, they did a great job. I think they recognize that a competition like that, just like JBF did in this country, helps bring brewers together. A little competition helps raise the bar in quality, and it really brings people together. It gives some kind of mark and, and quality in the country, and it, it helps the total industry, the craft industry. Sure. There was a time here also that you know there were brewers off in their own corners of the country doing their own thing and not collaborating and not talking about what was happening in their brew houses, and the beer is much better now that you guys kind of all work together. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're right, that the Great American Beer Festival is the perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. So, Alright, let's do this. We're going to take a quick break, and if you guys have any questions for Lars or Matt from Firestone and Trimmer, uh, please come on up and, and I'll make sure we get them asked. The, I know that Firestone's got some beer on tap here. Of course, Trimmer's on tap. Um, I'm drinking your DBA right now, Matt. What else did you bring? Do you know? We have the Velvet Merkin. Okay, nice. You called it the right name this time. Yeah, this is the Merkin. Oh, it is? Yeah, it's for real. I thought it had to be the Velvet Merlin nowadays. Well, this is the Merkin. It's the Merkin. Perfect. I've got the Merkin. Yeah, you I actually wore my Merkin tonight. <laughs> I had to lighten up and like, not... You <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> Matt's going to show his Merkin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more from Trumer and Firestone. Thanks for sticking with us. We're live from Zeitgeist in San Francisco for San Francisco Beer Week. 
listening to the Brewcasters. Brewcasters on the Brewing Network. We're broadcasting live for SF Beer Week at Zeitgeist in San Francisco. And uh, it's an awesome uh, German bar, a great beer bar in general. And uh, we're here with Matt Brindleson from Firestone and uh, Lars Larson from Trumer Brauerei. i got a Trumer in front of me now. i got a couple uh, DBAs from Firestone to start me out, and I move over to the Pilsner. I have two Trumers in front of me now. I've been staying away from the Velvet Merkin. I've been start. working the Merkin. You have. <laughs> See, I figured I didn't, I didn't want to slur in the first segment, so I, I'm going to wait till the third segment before I start slurring. I'll move right. to the Merkin after that. Uh, so, speaking of beer events, I know that this is a busy week, and there's an event coming off, uh, coming up in the in the future in, what is it, June, Matt? Firestone's having their very first uh, beer festival down there at the Firestone Walker Brewery this year. Yeah, we're super excited because uh, basically what happened was we were approached by a local charity, the Pioneer Association in Paso Robles, and they had access to, it's the City Fathers of Paso, it's, it's a, a group of people that have been around forever. They're trying to preserve Paso Robles heritage, and they had access to this great venue, which is the Mid-State Fair. Uh, if you've never been to the Mid-State Fair, they've done a great job of building stages. They've got grass area for camping. It's just an amazing venue. They approached us and said, there's so many wineries in this region. There's so much going on in the wine world. Let's do a beer fest. Let's let's try to bring some beer culture to Paso. We've got the brewery right there. And, nice. And they just handed it to us on a silver platter. So the guys came to me and they said, how would you want to structure this? And we've got a lot of beer fests in California. Yeah. And there's some wonderful ones, Boonville being an example of, I great think, a, a great beer fest. And so, you know, we don't want to try to replicate what's already been done. I think one of the things we were uh, really trying to avoid was that it was a distributor's uh, platform where distributorships would come in and just, show their wares. So the first rule of engagement is that if we invite you, you have to come with your brewers. Yeah. In fact, we'd like the top brass. We want the guys who are responsible for the recipes. And we're going to try to limit it to one, um, it doesn't have to be extreme beer, but something special that you do that you don't have on your you know draft every day. And then one session beer. And that was another rule of engagement. Bring something drinkable. Bring sure. something like this Pilsner that's just wonderful. See, you get to do this, Matt, because you've got all those great American Beer Festival medals on your wall. So you decide to have a festival and you're kind of swinging your dick around and saying, if you're going to come to my festival, you have to send a brewer and you have to send the most amazing beer that you make. Other festivals don't get that luxury, you know. Well, so I didn't know what the response would be, but my dream, of course, was that I would call all my best friends in the industry, people that never poured beer in California, would never even think of pouring beer in California, yeah. and see if we could get them in. So that was the premise. So, cool. you know, I've had a lot of phone calls since where some like, you know, friends Friends, acquaintances have called me and said, you know, how do I get into this fest, Matt? And I'm like, well, you need to read the title. 
an invitational. You're not invited. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know how else to say it. That's and, and it's not that we don't want those breweries there, but we wanted to have very few high-caliber breweries, predominantly breweries that don't pour in the Central Coast. We want to bring beer culture to the Central Coast. Okay. And, you know, just to name a few, so the first guy I called was uh, Nick Floyd from Three Floyds, and I don't know how well you know Nick, but he's a man of few words, and he yeah. doesn't probably travel. I think he travels to California enough, but he doesn't sell beer here, and he was the first guy to respond. Oh, is that like, right? This is working. And we called Cigar City in Florida, and we know, you know yeah. you're forever away, so you probably won't come. They're like, oh, no, we're there for sure. And we called Founders in Michigan. They're like, oh, yeah, we're in. This is what I'm saying. And we just went, now has a name. Yeah. And then we called McKellar in Denmark. I'm like, if this is working, let's call that guy. He's like, bro, I'm there. Are wow. you kidding me? And it just went down the line. So it's a star-studded cast, and uh, we're thrilled. And, of course, I invited Lars. Was in the, and, and so we, we have Much to. appreciate it. We, we're local, though. We, I wouldn't call you local. I mean, <laughs> so you're okay. I just walked out to the table out here where everybody was drinking Trumer Pills, and they asked me where I was from. I said, Firestone. They're like, never heard of it. So I'm not so sure we're <laughs> right. local to your market. But so Lars didn't have to call for his invitation. I like he that. He did not have to call for <laughs> I didn't have to grovel. I much appreciate that. I mean, How do I get that? It's, it's, it's a little bit of a secret, but uh, I'm a Pilsner junkie. I love Pilsners, and we don't make one. So why don't you make one if you're a Pilsner junkie? We're thinking about making it. We talk about it all the time, but you're I don't afraid know. you're going to fuck it up. Well, you know, because you're a big fan. You're like me. Like, when I'm a big fan of something, I don't want to do it because I'm afraid I'll fuck it up. I'll tell you what. I've been asked a million times what my Desert Island beer is, and this one's always on my list. Nice. That's why I have two in front of me right now. <laughs> right. One's, when one's not enough. <laughs> so, uh, Pilsner being one of your favorite beers, you've just explained, however, the rules of engagement uh, for the festival. You have to bring something different than your, your standard beer. Lars, yeah. that kind of puts you uh, in a predicament. It is a little bit of a pickle, but we do make a six-pack. It's six individual beers. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a variety pack, too. It's right. six. going to bring a keg and a six-pack. Six <laughs> I, think, I think maybe you should do a dry-hopped Pilsner and bring that as your special beer. Mm. I like this idea. Would it be dry-hopped also a with German? You should do a keg or two and bring it down. You could do. We won't even tell Trumer, Lars. Everybody here has sworn to silence. We will not tell Trumer here. <laughs> you will do this dry out beer just for this festival. Mm. <laughs> Lars might have to bust out his homebrew kit for this one. Well, let me ask a serious question about this. Um, I know that some breweries, you know, have these enormous uh, fermenters and, and vessels. So for some breweries, it's not even possible to do a small batch of something. You'd have to do a, a huge batch. Would it be possible? Possible to do a small one-off batch at Truman. We've got three size tanks. So okay. we've got a 50-barrel tank, which is a single brew, and 200-barrel tanks, which are four brews. And then the tanks we use for conditioning are 800 barrels, and those are much bigger. So those will, they, those would hold 16 brews. So you're yeah. saying there's a chance in the 50-barrel yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. category? Yeah. That's, that's I'm, a I'm small say, batch. All you got to do is run a little bit of beer into some kegs and dry hop them. There you and they're go. just for passing. So you don't even have to sell anything. Hypothetically. Nobody, not even those guys over there, they wouldn't know about it. <laughs> yeah, the check shirt, working, he would yeah. never know about it. I'll have my guys take them out the door. You'll be fine. <laughs> Hypothetically, if you were to dry hop a, a beer, Lars, mm-hmm. your beer in particular, what, what, do you, what would you dry hop it with? What would work with a Pilsner if you were going to dry hop it? Well, I mean, you'd want to stay with a family if you're going to do that. You'd stick, with the, you'd stick with the hops that you have. You wouldn't want to you know, like bust out the Cascades or the uh, something, you know, something really radical. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so you, you so you might use something like a Saz or anything in the Noble family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be it. I was going to ask a question. If when you do, do you get involved in hop selection, or is that brought over because there's so much history there with the growers? The Aurora's we contract, so we're working together with the Hop Growers Co-op in Austria, and in order to ensure that we get the quantity that we need, um, they grow them for us specially. So we're not doing a lot of selecting. The Europeans have an entirely different regulation as far as um, the pesticides and herbicides that you're allowed to use than the Americans do. Uh, strange, you would think that uh, you know we're both first world regions. However, there's different regulations and so the hops that they grow for us have to go to the u.s because of the pesticide and herbicide regulations interesting yeah it is interesting so with the with the hops with the aurora bittering hops we don't really do much selection at all we just accept those because they're they're grown for us um the uh the noble hops, the aroma, uh, the aroma hops. Uh, Darren over there walking right past. He's he, he went up most recently to go select hops up in the in uh, Yakma. So we select for our uh, aroma hops uh, samples that come over. Mm-hmm. So a question I have about even the hops that you get. I know that there was a hop crisis not too long ago, and even now as new hops come about, uh, you know, so many American breweries love to jump on these different hops that are uh, become more popular over time. Amarillo is one, and Citra is another one right now. Simcoe is something that's impossible to get. Um, so people, ha- you know, these cycles happen. Are, are German hops difficult for you to get sometimes, or is it a pretty consistent crop? We've been contracting out four years, so it's it's consistent because we we know that the, the hop growers know that we're buying it, and okay. so they plant it. And uh, I'm, I'm a big advocate of that system. If, if I want to know that I'm going to actually get the hops that I want, yeah. and I still have a selection because I get to choose between lots, um, I, w- I want to make sure that they actually grow them for me. And one reason why some of those hops came and went is because there was a market and then there was no market. And, you know, what, what's a farmer going to do? A farmer was between a rock and a hard place, and he decided to pull the plants out of the ground at some point. And, you know, it's not fair to the farmer. And, you know, a farmer cannot sell his hops to anybody but a brewer. Right. There is Good no point. market, zero market. <laughs> There's for, no other use. I remember when I was uh, over in Germany, there was a hop shampoo for men, and that is the only other use for hops. <laughs> was it a big seller? <laughs> I don't think so. It went on right. the market. <laughs> a bunch of my friends keep trying to smoke it, but that doesn't work either. There's one use for hops. There is one use for hops. A brewer that will remain nameless told me he took a vaporizer up to uh, Yakima and used that to judge his hops. I was like, oh, how did that go? <laughs> that was Not that well. A, yeah. How was that a headache? <laughs> oh. But I think that when you mentioned the hop crisis, and, and Lars mentioned hop contract, had all craft brewers been able to, because not everybody was able to contract, but if, right. if everybody was and or were able to contract hops, we would not have had a crisis. The farmers, when you meet a hop farmer, it's just like meeting a craft, a craft brewer. It's it's somebody who's passionate about what they're doing. They want to support the industry. Like you said, they're the only their only customer are brewers. Yeah. And if they have a sure thing, they want to do it. Okay. Uh, they don't want to pull hops out and grow corn. They don't want to pull hops out and, and grow anything else. I mean, they're 
their families have been doing it for generations. So I think it was a learning lesson for, for small brewers all around the world that if we contract, if we communicate forward, we'll get the hops we need. Okay. Amarillo, Simcoe, and some of these proprietary hops are a little bit different. It's a new age where people are um, trademarking names, trademarking genetic material. So um, not any farmer can grow those is what you're saying. They're controlled, of course. Yeah. And, and so that creates a little bit different environment. But I think that, you know, it just takes time and, again, you know, communication with the farmers. Yeah. Are there any hops, you know, so you have so many beers, Matt, that you guys produce uh, and, and some standard beers uh, that people expect to see on the shelf or in the bar. It, are there any hops this year that you've had to kind of switch out because you couldn't get them? Uh, actually, this year was a good year for us in that we were contracted and stabilized enough that we could actually start bringing back hops into recipes that we were feathering other things into. Um, but as a craft brewer uh, that uses you know 12 or 14 different varieties, in many ways I'm, I'm jealous of Lars because you have this one beer to concentrate on, and I have a number of beers to try to keep track of. Yeah, um, everything's growing, and it's a it's a dynamic market. And so we just had a meeting today that uh, I thought I knew exactly how many hops I I thought I had everything I needed, and I was told that Union Jack and Double Jack were growing well beyond what my original projections were. So, yeah, I go shopping. And uh, has, uh, I don't know if you'll hate me even for asking this question, but I think it's a pretty valid question as a fan of Union Jack. So Union Jack came out as my favorite IPA I've had in a long time. And either my palate has gotten stupid over the last couple years, or I feel like the beer has changed a little bit. Have you had to substitute hops for that beer from the original recipe? No, in fact, um, if anything, that beer has more hops in it now than it ever did. I think it's a changing environment around these beers. Although, you know, I'd love to sit down and taste that beer with you and and get your opinion. But I think that um, when when Union Jack came out, we were trying to bring something beyond what was acceptable in the marketplace. And now these hops, I mean, I just went to the Double IPA Festival in in Hayward this weekend, and I could not believe how hoppy some of these beers were. I mean, just blow your head off. And some wonderful beers, but uh, it's it's a dynamic marketplace. I mean, these these beers are, you know, elevating. The definitions are changing. Yeah. yeah. Well, not just that. I mean, something that I think is worth talking about with craft beer is uh, I think as craft beer fans, we do allow your beer to change a little bit. We, we like different beers. But there's still a certain amount of consistency. When I become a fan of Union Jack, for example, I expect it to taste like Union Jack. So, and, and Lars, this must be even more difficult for you. When I drink Trumer Pills, it really better tastes like Trumer Pills. But we're talking about living ingredients that you put in here. We're talking about crops that change from year to year, uh, it, just on the malt side, and hops that change from year to year. How do you compensate for uh, something that grows differently each year and, and still make the product taste the same? Well, we, you know, we keep an ideal in our mind as far as the flavors, and so we work with the best flavors that we can find that are going to match that. And then... The, I mean, the malt comes in. The malt will change from truckload to truckload sometimes. So we, we adjust as we go. Uh, keep keep do analysis uh, as, as often as we can on each brew and make the changes as kind of a as we can to, to adopt to that. Okay. So. What about what about blending? Is that something that has to happen to get a consistent product? Absolutely. Okay. So it's I mean to to make a beer one time, make one batch, and then hope to replicate it one month later. 
later the next time you make it, if you're making a porter once a month, it'll be almost impossible to, to match that. With the trimmer, we're fortunate that we are putting somewhere between you know, 10 and 14 brews into every batch, and so we got uh, blending just just naturally because of that. In fact, there's probably more than that in there, so okay. you know, up to... Uh, you know, 15 to 20, kind of depending on time of year and so on, brews in every batch. And so there's, there's just a lot of uh, blending inherent in that, and that helps drive consistency. So are you the guy that gets to taste all of the blended batches until it gets just right? Well, we, the, the blending doesn't actually happen like a winery does where you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I get to put 30% of this and 10% of that and 5% of that. You know, we, okay. we know that of the 12 brews that we brewed this week, all 12 are going into the same tank. Plus a couple more from next week are going in to kind of blind that out. And so that's that's how that works. It isn't it isn't a matter of just strict proportions. Okay. In in craft beer in general, I think uh, in the U.S., Matt, in my opinion, because I've heard you talk about it a lot, you've been kind of a champion of, of blending beer in a craft brewery. And I think that there was even and there probably still is resistance to doing that with beer. That it's not something that should be blended. You brew it and that's what it is, and you drink it if you're a real craft brewer and, and things like that. And I think Matt's always been a champion that you guys are really selling yourself short of what you could be producing if you do do some blending. Well, yeah, I think most craft brewers think of you brew a batch, you try to capture the flavors that you want, and you push that forward, and you try to be consistent in your brewing program. And then what Lars is talking about, about taking the same beer and blending it together to make sure that there's consistency over time is, is just wise brewing. That's sure. just how good brewers make it. Matt doesn't take of the 40 barrels that he has aging his, his barrel... Uh, Barrel aged beers, DBA. He doesn't make sure that one barrel goes into X bottles. He makes sure that all the barrels get blended together. Okay. You know, I mean, that's. Yeah, you got to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but we, you know, it's a, it's a winemaker family that uh, started Firestone Walker. So they were very open to this concept of taking two different styles of beer, blending them together to make flavors. So okay. we, you know, we've taken kind of this concept of blending for consistency and turned it a little bit on its side and said that, hey, if we're going to make a beer and make something that's complex and... You know, consistency is part of that, but I mean, something complex, taking a multi beer and a hoppy beer, bringing them together, that is something that Firestone is kind of known for. Okay. And now you guys do this, uh, you know, your anniversary beer every year. 15, you just did 15, right? Yeah. Released yep. a few months ago. I got to sit on, sit in on the uh, the production of 14 and see how it works. And it was fascinating to me because it wasn't all brewers around the table. In fact, I think you were the only brewer at the table. It was all vintners from the area to sit down and take. I also liked how it worked because it was taste whatever Matt has left over from the different beers that he brewed, whatever he has enough of to that you know you can produce enough of the anniversary beer. It's all on a whiteboard. He just puts every beer on a whiteboard, and it gets brought out to all the vintners around the table, and they taste each one individually, and then they pour them all into a pitcher together with their own, like you were kind of saying in the beginning, Lars, that you don't do, like 30% of this and 10% of that. And in the end, uh, and I think you have a rule, Matt, that... 
every one of them has to be used. Just which percentage of each one? Is that what it, I remember? Actually, every year is a little bit different. So in, in I think the year that you sat, we were trying to get all these beers in there. But the general premise is that we're going to make a number of unique beers that are brewed as components. They're not necessarily beers that were ever meant to stand on their own, but they're beers that have interesting flavor notes that could stand to, you know, to, to, to integrate into some kind of blend. But rather than us do it as brewers, because we're brewers, it's not, not our expertise, we call upon the local winemakers. We ask them to come to the brewery and we say, hey, here, here are a bunch of beers that we brewed over the course of the year. They've been sitting in barrels from anywhere from six, year, uh, six months excuse me, to three years, and let us know what you think. And then we stand back, and the rule is that the brewers can't interfere with what the winemakers want to do in the blend. We let you in to the mix somehow, <laughs> some way. You just showed up. And, <laughs> I just showed wow. up. That's how I got in. <laughs> yeah. hey, that, that happens from time to time. Uh, Pete Slosberg is in the crowd, and he, he crashes that blending on a regular basis sure. and adds a lot to the to the, to the program. But So that's the idea, is to get somebody else's perspective. They blend it together. Originally, it was just something, hey, let's try this and see if it works. Yeah. And it did. That's and been a huge hit. It's been six years now, and, and it really pushed Firestone out of that session beer, you know, let's not think outside of the brewing box mode into doing a lot of new and creative things. So it, yeah. was, it was really good for us. It, it's And they're great beers. If you haven't had the Firestone 15, that's the, the most recent one. That's fantastic. I think my favorite of them is the, uh, I think it's the 13. It's the Silver Box. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's the 13. A lot of stout in that one. One of the best beers I've ever had. And the complexity of these things, blending all these beers together, was my point in the beginning that I think a lot of brewers uh, would miss out if they are uh, staunch against uh, you know, blending beers together. Historically, there's a lot to it. I mean, original English porters were blends of sour, older beer with younger beer. Of course, the whole Lambic tradition of blending older beers with younger beer. So we didn't invent this concept. I think we just took a little different take on it with using winemakers. Gotcha. <laughs> hey, back to this IPA thing. What, yeah. What's wrong with the union? It's, it's just not what it used to be, Matt. Oh, man, you're killing me. I'll tell you what. Uh, you let's describe that for me. I'll, you, I'll tell you what it is when I come back. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, <laughs> I'll tell, uh, being the expert that I am, I'm going to tell Matt Brindleton, one of the best brewers in the world, what's wrong with this beer. It's uh, the Brewing Network. We're hanging out at Zeitgeist for San Francisco Beer Week. If you've got any questions, this will be our last segment, so feel free to come on up, and uh, and we can ask the brewers anything about their beer. They're, they're pretty nice guys, uh, except for Matt. He can turn into a real jerk. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Brewcasters. Back. 
Welcome back to the program, and thanks for sticking with us. It's the Brewing Network, still broadcasting live from Zeitgeist in San Francisco. It's the middle of SF Beer Week, so, uh, you know, livers are hurting. I can hear them screaming. They're, they're in training Get your second right now. win. Yeah, they're in training, because there's really, there's a lot left. Uh, I mean, it all ends with another big uh, beer festival at Trumer. The, the Celebrator Beer Fest that ends SF Beer Week every year uh, is at Trumer once again. Yeah, this Sunday. Coming up, so people so. gotta they gotta stay ready for that. That's mm-hmm. why we had this session because it's Trumer Pills DBA. It's some session beers. We're just kind of cleaning off the palate to dive back in. It's true. This was us pushing out for a few hours so that we can <laughs> oh, no, 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 dive no, back no, in. No. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You're right. And I appreciate the encouragement from you, Lars. Thank you for that. All right, so I promised Matt uh, before the break that I'd, uh, I'd tell him what's wrong with his beer. Yeah, but use some vocabulary that I can understand. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, I'm not a uh, certified beer Cicerone. Uh, Cicerone's a sponsor of ours, by the way. and Very good if you're certified, and I'm not. Or a BJCP judge. But I do love my beers, and I, I'm kind of uh, uh, I'm a creature of habit, so I do like to go back to some of the same beers all the time. For example, I will not say a bad word about uh, either Trumer Pills or Pale 31. Pale 31, I can go to it uh, ten times a day. I often do. Uh, every day. And it's it's, it never fails me. It's a perfect paleo, in my opinion. Union Jack was a perfect IPA <laughs> when it came out and it won the Brewing Network's IPA of the year, uh, beer of the year, actually, a few wow. years ago. It has since sweetened up a little bit. Mm, sweet. It's not as dry uh, and uh, uh, attenuated as I feel it was in that first batch. When did, what year did it come out? Uh, 07. In 07. Uh, in 07, the uh, attenuation, the dryness compared to the, uh, in my opinion, mild bitterness, but great hop flavor. So uh, the reason I loved it so much as an IPA is that it wasn't a bitter beer. It had this great hop like aroma and flavor. Um, this sweetness has since crept up, in my opinion, on what's, this What's beer. interesting about you saying that is that over the years, actually, attenuation has increased, really? and so there was See, a point... I'm an idiot. There, well, no. The, <laughs> I trust your palate, but so what happened was is the, the alcohol was actually creeping over what was legally okay by the label. Oh, yeah. So we would have to decrease the original gravity. So we were actually getting better attenuation, which is one of the, the, the goals of that beer, is to make sure there isn't a lot of sweetness. Okay. But it's interesting that you would say that it has a higher perceived sweetness. Yeah, and, and that's what it is. And, and that's why, uh, honestly... It's a draft or bottle? Bottle. Draft, it's still a perfect beer. I think that, and, and Lars, you can chime in here, but I think as our beers age, sweetness becomes an issue. Really? And so one of the things, and it's probably not the worst thing that can happen to a beer as it ages, but the perceived sweetness increases over time. And okay. that's something our panelists and our brewery panel always say. So I would say that judge us not by our aged bottles, but judge us by our draft. And if I do that, then I've, again, I have not a bad word to say about the Union Jack. It's still a perfect uh, IPA. In fact, I'm surprised that it doesn't win IPA every single year at uh, GAB. We, exactly. we, we had our run, bottles. but I think, I, I, I always say that, that that category shifts every year. Yeah. And even DIPA this year at... In, 
in Hayward. Wonderful beers. Last year, um, I felt like the beers that won were very refined, very balanced, very round. I really agreed with the judges this year. Wonderful beers, but it was all about slugging each other in the head with Is that right? eggs. It was, yeah. See, I do, you know, we kind of uh, make fun on the show of IPAs because they are so getting, the limits are being pushed so far and because everybody makes one. But really what we mean is, certainly what I mean on the show is that I love an IPA if it's about flavor and aroma. But if it's a extremely bitter beer, if it really punches me in the jaw with with the bitterness, I just I'd rather have a pale ale. I'll be honest. And this is something I've always been a fan of uh, Firestone for is the balance of that. That you you seem to be more attuned to a flavor and aroma profile of a bitter beer than a bitterness of a. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think that. Uh, well, we started a new group uh, amongst craft brewers called the Hop Quality Group, and we're going out and. and talking to growers and trying to um, let them know that we're most interested in aroma before alpha and that's kind of our motto and uh, so you hit it right on the on the head that for most brewers i'm sure lars is the same for you when you're making a pilsner it's about the aroma of those hops before you're worried too much about the alpha content of those hops um, you're going to get bitterness you're going to hit your IBU one way or another with your bittering hops or however you're doing that but uh, it's all about aroma yeah and you were talking about it in the other segment that uh, you know oils year to year weather everything uh, morphs a little bit so the brewer has to stay on top of what's happening agronomically uh, to to create consistency um, bitterness is pretty easy it's calculated it's a math equation sure that, and it, it does seem like an easy thing to get you can use almost anything with, with a, enough alpha acid and get your bitterness but that aroma and the flavor is a tough part so before you guys were this this group that you're talking about that were out there trying to encourage hop growers to focus on uh, the, the oils that, that produce the aroma and the flavor, who was doing it before? Were there no standards? Well, the, the reason that the group came about was because of the InBev buyout of AB. Um, of course, they, they let a lot of people go. There was a lot of um, cleaning house in the organization. And one of the things that went to the wayside was their hop quality group. So for years now, decades, Anheuser-Busch led quality in Yakima and Willamette Valley. And internationally, they set standards for hop growers. They were AB standards. They weren't necessarily craft brewer standards, but they set standards for growing. And when the buyout happened, a number of us uh, started talking and said that, hey, nobody's in Yakima. And, and growers, like I said earlier, are they're just like craft brewers. They're naturally drawn to quality, but everyone's definition of quality is different. And so we felt like there was a time, it was the right time, right place to get together, um, talk about what quality means to us as a group, and try to somehow communicate that to growers. And Lars talked about contracting. That's one way that... that that brewers communicate quality to growers because we say this is the variety we want and this is the quantity we want. Yeah. But there's more language. There's more conversation that needs to be had on what's important to us, whether it's kilning temperatures of the hops, whether it's you know how long that, that hop is left to ripen in the field. Um, there's a number of things, how it's processed downstream. So uh, we started a group, and it's, it's 12 brewers in the craft industry, very small brewers who by themselves wouldn't have a very large voice, but we got together. You're a 12-step uh, program together. Yeah. There are some significant names among those 12. And if nothing else, we've met some wonderful people in the hop grower uh, community, and we've learned a lot as growers. Do we get to – Lars said there's some some good names in the 12, which I think is important to people maybe who who really care about this sort of thing. 
even know about it. You yeah, get to know I mean, it's, it's a lot of names that you know and love. It's uh, uh, ourselves, Firestone Walker. It's um, uh, it's Deschutes. It's New Belgium Brewing Company. It's Sam Adams Brewing Company. It's New Glarus in there. Yeah, New Glarus. Oh, great. Um, Odell's. I mean, okay. Uh, Boulevard in the Midwest. There's just a number of what I would call like you know forward-thinking brewers who are just interested in quality. Yeah. Was there a time that Alpha Acid, the the high Alpha Acid, for anybody who doesn't know that Alpha Acid is is kind of directly attributed to the the bitterness in a beer, and the higher the Alpha Acid of a hop, the more bitterness it could add. Was there a time that that was the most important uh, for cost purposes because you could use less hops and get the same bitterness? Uh, and that time is still with us. It is okay, but that's just in your first edition of hops, your bittering edition of hops. So you might still well, use yeah, a high. Most, most hop contracts are still based on the alpha acid content. So okay. Yeah, I mean that is sort of the just sort of the lowest common denominator that is easy for people to measure. It's easy to measure, and so that's what you use. If you don't, I mean, the, the, the problem with the aroma hops is that there is no real standard quantifiable measure that you can say, this is exactly what I want as far as my aroma content. And it's, I mean, there, there are 200 compounds or something like that, that it could be any blend of. And yeah. so it's, you can't, all you can say is, I like this, I don't like this. And people are trying, they're trying very hard to quantify it. Okay. So. All right. And, and some of the cutting edge technology is happening here in the United States. I mean, Tom Nielsen at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company has probably the most uh, advanced instrumentation and probably one of the best noses in the world when it comes to quantifying quality relative to aroma. Okay. And so it's happening, and it's an exciting time in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And more hop farmers every year, I imagine. People getting not just these uh, kind of dec- you know uh, decades of families doing it, but but new farmers or no? No. Not no too new, many new no, growers. No new farmers, no really? growers, no. It's, it's, they're probably cutting back. There's some that are maybe getting back in, putting a few more acres back in. But Okay. Yeah, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's, there's a shrinking in the, in the hop industry. There's a lot of families who are either switching crops, but uh, that's what the, the craft brewing industry has been, a breath of fresh air into the hop growing world. I mean, finally, there's people oh, who care about huge. variety. Huge, yep. huge. It's, uh, it's saved the hop growers. Craft brewing has saved the hop growers. Okay. And, and the average uh, craft brewer uses a pound of hops per barrel, and many of us, like in Union Jack, this beer you hate so much now, uh, uses <laughs> yeah. almost four pounds per barrel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so hop growers love that. They love that. <laughs> you may not, yeah. but the hop growers yeah, love the that. The hop growers do that. Oh, Matt's our favorite guy. I just think he's a jerk. <laughs> All right. We're about out of time, guys. But I do kind of have one more question to, to put you on the spot with. And I think it kind of goes with SF Beer Week. SF Beer Week, there's so many different events going on. And, and I think part of it is brewers showing off what they do have and these different beers that maybe they can't sell all year round. And, and really, especially because beer geeks are coming out to these events because we want something more, something new. Do you guys have like a favorite new trend in craft beer? Maybe a favorite style, a favorite something? You know, every, people are barrel aging now. They're making these enormous like double IPAs, which were probably triple IPAs that you had at that festival the other day. Things like this. Is there something that you're, either one of you, both of you are particularly excited about that, that you get to taste on a week like this? 
I'm a big whiskey fan, so I like a lot of barrel-aged beers. Okay. Um, and I, li- I like the beers that are done in in whiskey barrels, and I like things that have, you know, have those sort of whiskey notes. So that's yeah. kind of what I look for. See, I like those. I'm a little – I like the barrel characters and things like that, and if it's like the hint of the bourbon. I don't want a lot of wood, yeah. but a little, a little of the whiskey, a little of the vanilla, maybe some bourbon, maybe some scotch, whatever might be in there. I like sh- I like whiskey and done in sherry barrels, so yeah. those kind of notes are, are – I really like seeing those. Me balance too. is the key, so it's got to be something which is in balance. I don't want to have just one flavor coming at me. Right. Maybe uh, that could be your Firestone uh, beer. Festival well, beers. you know what you I'm thinking of for the Firestone Beer Festival beer? I'm thinking of a quadruple sour elderflower cinnamon. Oh, <laughs> holy cow. Perfect. Nice. That sounds great. Maybe put some hemp seeds in there and it'll be perfect. Yes. <laughs> Matt, what about you? Any new trends that you're particularly excited about? Trends, I'm not sure, but uh, Goza and Berliner Weizen are things that I'm very curious about. It's, I've never brewed them myself, but uh, I went to um, Triple Rock to the... Oh, you were there as well. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the Sour the Fest. Fest. Yeah, and I think those are my favorite beers. They're they're light in alcohol, and they have some interesting sour notes to them, but they're not over over the top. Um, I think for us, we're we're starting to uh, play around. I'm almost afraid to say this on the air, but we're starting to think seriously about creating a, a third barrel program, a sour barrel program. Oh, please and, do uh, it. I'm begging you. A couple of the products that have worked well for us are just taking our regular double barrel ale that's completely end fermented and then inoculating it with Brett and letting it sit, and it almost turns into a rodent. Bach-esque type beer. Yeah. We call it agrestic ale internally. But uh, so, you know, I'd have to say that sour is something I'm curious about. Everyone says sour is the new hoppy, so I don't want to try to just jump on the trend on the wagon. wagon. But uh, but you're, are, it's a, sour tends to be a barrel and an aging thing anyway, which you're already very familiar with. So it seems yeah. like a natural step for you to do. Yeah, and in our in our on our team and in our uh, organization, so to speak, uh, Jim Crooks, our quality manager, who I've been brewing with for 12 years now. Uh, I think he has a natural, uh, a natural act for this stuff. So I think that uh, if we set Jim on that path, yeah, um, we'll, we'll make some interesting sour beers down the line. I would love to taste them. All right, I want to thank Lars Larson uh, from Truebert for being with us today. It's always good to talk to you, Lars. Thanks, man. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Anytime. And Matt Brindleson from Firestone Walker. Uh, it's always good to, ch- to chat hops and beer with you, man. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you, man. What were you guys like? Uh, Small brewery of the year for the tenth time in a row, or something. Just because I'm a small guy doesn't mean you have to call me small. Was it mid-size or it was small? Mid-size. You guys are mid-size. So I forget sometimes. I look at you and I'm like, "Yeah, you must have been small." <laughs> what? Two years in a row now, or something, right? Something, something like that. I don't it's know. got an enormous amount of metals coming out of Firestone. Yeah. Good work. You can punch me after the show. <laughs> I also want to thank uh, Lauren from Firestone and April from Trumer for putting this all together for us. I really appreciate it. Uh, we don't do a lot of broadcast events during SF Beer Week, so I appreciate you inviting us to do it, and it was a great time. Thanks to everybody for hanging out here at Zeitgeist with us. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a good time. You can go to thebrewingnetwork.com uh, if you are just enjoying your time with your friends and you missed any of this. You can download this show next week at thebrewingnetwork.com. And uh, thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us. You guys were awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next time on The Brewing Network. <laughs>
I'll be a wheat beer on a hot summer day. A bark will do me when the skies are gray. I'll take a Belgian brew anytime. And the women think the lamb is fine. But don't you give me that American crude, boys. I want a real home brew. Home brew, don't you really love a better home brew? Can't get enough of it. Home brew, it blows my mind. I love home brew all of the time. Yeah, I think I'll have me well, I'm the one right now. Yeah, you know what I am talking about But don't you give me that American crude Boys, I want a real homebrew Homebrew, don't you really love that homebrew Can't get enough of it Homebrew, it blows my mind I love homebrew all the time Yeah, I think I have that one